Hello, welcome everybody, not only to the Durham Book Festival, but um, particularly to this session with Pat Barker. And my name is Sharon Monteith. I'm at the University of Nottingham, and I've been writing books and essays about Pat Barker's fiction for some years. Um, Pat needs no lengthy introduction, I know, because that's why you're all here. Um, but I think that if, there were, if we were to create a world map of important contemporary writers, we know her place is secure on that map, as it is in the literary history of the British novel. And since 1982, her first prize-winning novel, Union Street, Pat Barker has been entertaining us, making us think, making us feel very deeply across some 13 novels. And we're going to talk today about um, this most recent trilogy of novels that begins with Life Class, moves through Toby's room into Noonday, um, which we'll also talk a little bit about. And um, if you'd like to welcome Pat, she's about to read from a, two small extracts, I think. From yes, two very small. Welcome me later, it's all right. <laughs> <laughs> this is the first chapter, uh, so it needs comparatively little explanation. The, the, the next one needs a bit, but not very much. Eleanor was halfway up the drive when she sensed she was being watched. She stopped and scanned the upstairs windows, wide open in the heat, as if the house were gasping for breath. But there was nobody looking down. Then, from the sycamore tree at the end of the garden, came a rustling of leaves. Oh, of course, Kenny. She was tempted to ignore him, but that seemed unkind. So she went across the lawn and peered up into the branches. Kenny? No reply. There was often no reply. Kenny had arrived almost a year ago now, among the first batch of evacuees. And although this area had since been reclassified, neutral rather than safe, here he remained. She felt his gaze heavy on the top of her head, like a hand, as she stood squinting up into the late afternoon sunlight. Kenny spent hours up there, not reading his comics, not building a treehouse, not dropping conkers on people's heads. No, just watching. He had a red notebook in which he wrote down car numbers, the time people arrived, the time they left. Of course, she forgot what it was like to be his age, Probably every visitor was a German spy. Oh, and he ate himself, that was the other thing. He was forever nibbling his fingernails, tearing at his cuticles, picking scabs off his knees and licking up the blood, even pulling hair out of his head and sucking it. And despite being a year at the village school, he hadn't made friends. But then he was the sort of child who attracts bullying, she thought guiltily conscious of her own failure to like him. Kenny, isn't it time for tea? Then, with a great crash of leaves and branches, he dropped at her feet and stood looking up at her, scowling, for all the world like a small, sour, angry crabapple. Where's Paul? I'm afraid he couldn't come. He's, he's busy. He's always busy. Well, yes, he's got a lot to do. Are you coming in now? Evidently, that didn't deserve a reply. He turned his back on her 
and ran off through the arch into the kitchen garden. Uh, this next reading is from a, a lot later in the book. Uh, the Blitz has started. Eleanor is now an ambulance driver. And on this particular night, which is December the 29th, the second great fire of London, she's driving an ambulance and her co-driver is Kit Neville, who for a variety of reasons, which I can't go into because it gives part of the plot away, she isn't getting on very well with at the moment. Afterwards, it was the horses she remembered, galloping towards them out of the orange-streaked darkness, their manes and tails on fire. One huge black shire horse with frantically rolling eyes came straight at them. Eleanor wrenched the steering wheel violently to the left and a few yards further on pulled into the curb. In the rearview mirror, she saw the horses galloping away, their great, bright, battering hooves striking sparks from the road. She remembered a thud against the side of the ambulance and thought she might have caught one, a glancing blow on the shoulder as it careered past. She sat, breathing heavily, looking at her orange hands on the wheel. Even her skin didn't look like skin. Beside her, in the co-driver's seat, Neville cleared his throat. Would you like me to take over for a bit? No, thank you, she said, with another glance in the rearview mirror, preparing to move off. She might have taken that from Dana or Violet, but certainly not from him. Actually, Kit, if you want to, if you want to know what it feels like, to have your testicles skewered and roasted over a slow fire while you watch. You could try saying that again. <laughs> <laughs> You've made us laugh, and it's something that um, I've always noticed in your work. Uh, it's not easy to laugh at some of the subjects that you um, explore in your novels. But humour's important to you, isn't it? Yes, and it is, yeah. Important for readers. Yes, yes. I mean, I think the two things I like to try to offer my readers in uh, return for all the doom and gloom <laughs> is the occasional flash of humour and a lot of fairly uh, vigorous sex. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're brave about writing sex as well, aren't you? Yes, well, you there, are, you know, there are two sources of you know, routine joy in life. One is seeing the funny side of things, and one is you know, you know, sex and all the emotions and experiences that gather around sex. And when you think of all the violence there is as well, it's, it's nice to have a bit of light relief. And because this, this novel and obviously the, the trilogy of novels are so much about violence in war and suffering mm. in war, that yoking together of sex and death is quite powerful, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I think it's, uh, I think it's a recurring uh, thing that I, I, I do seem to do. Or that, you know, <laughs> not just me, it's, it's what people seem to do. It's mm. one of the characteristics of the, of the Blitz in the, in the memories of those who lived through it, that uh, it was a sexual riot, uh, that all kinds of uh, people were going to bed with all kinds of people, and uh, behaving in really rather uncharacteristic ways because all the normal routines and patterns were breaking down. And all, the one thing you could be sure of is that you might not be alive the following night. Mm. There was a lo lo lovely, um, uh, I think it's Henry Green, 
uh, which you know, I've, I've sort of borrowed slightly, where he listens to two young girls talking to each other as they get ready to go out for the evening with their dates. And one girl says to the other girl, who are you going out with tonight? Is it somebody you want to die with? And you think of the young girls you know setting out in life and how shocking it is really that one girl should say that to another. I mean, it's quite difficult to sustain a love or a romantic relationship in the context of war. And it struck me reading Noonday, and I don't know if you think this is right or not, that this is your first sustained love story in this trilogy. The first time you've ever written a long, drawn-out love story. Do you yes. think that's true? Yes, yes. Yes, I mean, uh, you, you meet Paul and Eleanor when they're actually still teenagers, I believe, in, in life class, uh, the first part of life class, where they're art students at the Slade. And here they are in this book in their late 40s, if not slightly more than that, uh, in a, a very, not a bad marriage, but a tired marriage. Mm. Uh, it, and I think it was tired even before the circumstances of the war uh, made Paul, in particular, extremely restless. And Paul is one of these people who is you know, it becomes slightly sexually deranged. And uh, it's not that he wants, he doesn't want commercial sex, he doesn't want a, a quick fling with the kind of woman he knows. He wants something quite specific. He wants to make love to the girls he knew mm. when he was 18 or 19 years old, before he left home to go to the Slade. He wants those girls. And of course, he can't have those girls. <laughs> uh, they don't exist anymore. Uh, and so he wants the impossible. Mm. And uh, he, he does actually meet somebody who is like those girls. She's a, she's a northern lass, you know, and that is part of it. He's very much inside. Although he's lived in London or abroad, he's very much inside, still a northerner, and her northern accent and her northern attitudes he finds very attractive. And then he finds out that actually she has already volunteered to join the Wrens, so she's not going to be around for very long. And that makes her irresistible. <laughs> He doesn't want to throw his marriage away. I mean, at the beginning of life class, I think the novel opens with Eleanor contemplating her parents' marriage and thinking about the secrets we have from one another and the lies that we tell to ourselves yes, yes. And, and others. Is that how you see this trilogy, as kind of exploring secrets and lies? Uh, well, there's, you know, there's one uh, enormous secret, of course. Well, there are two enormous secrets. Uh, one relates to the relationship between Eleanor and her adored, a slightly older brother, Toby. And the, the other secret, which is still there in this book, is the secret of how Toby died mm. and uh, whether anybody has ever succeeded in uncovering the truth about that. Is the absent present, you know? Yes. the absent presence, and it casts a very long shadow. In terms of that shadow, and there are a lot of shadows in this book, and I think we're being careful as well not to give away all of them to those people who may not have read. You, you mentioned there um, the importance of Paul being attracted to a northern lass. I'm wondering, the northeast, your home here, how much does this place infuse your artistic vision, do you think? 
I don't know about the artistic vision. I think what it does infuse completely is the language. I, I, think, uh, I think I write in the way that the women I grew up with spoke. And I ve I'm very, very conscious of their voices in, in my ears the whole time still. One of the interesting things about these novels, but this one in particular, is that you keep multiple character perspectives in view. Um, one of them being Eleanor, so a very important woman character, but also Kit Neville and Paul, who you've already mentioned. How difficult is that? And are these different perspectives a comment on the crisis of perception of war, or just the fact that people see the same events in very different ways? I think more and more I would be very reluctant to write any novel from a single perspective. Because I think one of the things that um, the novel can do for people that actually almost no other art form can is to give a sympathetic portrait of a group of people, two or three or at least pe people at least, who are actually fundamentally differing from each other in their attitudes, their beliefs, and in their understanding of what has just happened. And yet the reader is invited to enter into this and empathize with these differing points of view. And there is a lot of evidence that actually reading fiction does actually make people more empathetic and more tolerant. And my goodness, this world needs a lot of empathy and tolerance in people. So I'm, very, I'm actually very proud of fiction. Mm. Uh, I haven't always been. I've all, uh, no, the, it's, it's sometimes quite possible to finish a novel, uh, even a novel that you've enjoyed, and you put it down and you think, well, yes, but so what? And I, I think so what is answered by the fact that you have entered into another person's point of view. You've seen the world through their eyes. And actually, that's not so what. That is vitally important and we don't do enough of it. Hmm. You have said, I remember you saying that your novels are character-driven, in other words, that you come to the characters first. Hmm. Is that still true? And who was the first character who dominated your thinking? Well, I, th I, I think Kit Neville dominates my, my thinking. Uh, I think he's the most unusual character in many ways, the most unpleasant character. You know, he wouldn't be the guy he wanted to go out drinking with out of this current collection of people. Through his terrible injuries that he sustains in Toby's room, he acquires an almost mythic, uh, yes. you know, his shape, he's, very, he's one of these very broad-shouldered, deep-chested, bull-necked, and gets a bit bull-necked as he gets uh, into middle age, as, as men tend to do. And he is minotaur-shaped. Mm. But also, it's not just the mere physical shape of him. It's the fact that this constant, baffled pain, uh, which, you, which you see in bulls in the bull ring when they've been stabbed. They're angry, but they're also bewildered. And I, I see Neville as this bull-like creature, more than a man, but less than a man as well. I mean, he does see himself as monstrous, doesn't he? Um, oh, he describes himself as uh, a monster in this, in a particular chapter. And Eleanor says, you always were. And yet I can see why Kit Neville is the character who animates this novel, because so much happens to Kit. People may lose their houses in the Blitz, but Kit loses his face, doesn't he? Yeah, yes, he loses his face in the, fir in the First in World War. In the First War. World War. And uh, he, says in, you know, he says in the end, I, I, I've, I've lost almost everything. 
I mean, what was it that, that intrigued you, fascinated you about facial reconstruction in the first place? Because it's by this point in the, in the story, Kit has a new face, as it were. Well, I think what, what started me off being fascinated by that was the fact that uh, Tonks, who was uh, the professor of drawing at the Slade Art School, uh, worked during the First World War in St. Um, Mary's Hospital, Sidcup, where he drew portraits of facially disfigured men. Uh, and the portraits seemed to have served some medical function but also, at the same time, you just sense that he was absolutely fascinated by this face in which all the lower levels of anatomy uh, appear on the surface. It's exactly like a, uh, a bomb for, uh, falling onto the land. And yes. what, you, what you see is soil on the surface, which actually belongs 30 feet down. And uh, the same effect has occurred on the faces of these men. And what particularly impressed me was that Tonks, they were his finest work, and he believed they would, could never be shown and should never be shown. That fascinated me. Mm. It's something about the artist who is uh, working without any hope of public display or uh, their reputation becoming greater. They are showing the truth because the truth needs to be shown. And if they are the only person, or there is only a tiny group of people who actually looks at it, it doesn't matter. So writing without an audience, or without the feeling of what an audience might bring to that text, is a kind of freedom? Did you uh, feel that at the beginning as a writer? Or? I, think it's, I think it's just a simple obligation to tell the truth. I mean, there's that sort of uh, little piece from Goya, uh, how can you bear to look at this? Yeah. Uh, the disasters I, of war. I saw it. It is the truth. Yeah. And, uh, and, and Goya, of course, worked on these disasters of war etchings for four years, and they were never seen during his lifetime. No. I, I, I love the integrity of that, you see. I really love it. I mean, you do have a strong sense of art, morality, and morality changing and ethics in this book, mm. and and in the others. And listening to what you say, I mean, Kit Neville is an acclaimed war artist in the First World War, but he's not even commissioned in, no, he's, in the he, second. As he says, Why is that? He's lost his reputation. He had a, he had a great career immediately after the war, painting, painting cities, uh, and then he just fell out of fashion, and uh, he fell out of new tricks, I think. Uh, what, what he has done is to become an absolutely vitriolic critic whom everybody is frightened of. But of course, that doesn't satisfy him. Mm -hmm. uh, inside, he is still the painter, and it hurts that he's no longer recognised. I say no longer recognised, but his First World War paintings are hanging in galleries, very prestigious galleries. Uh, as, you know, he says to Paul, you know, our, our mistake was not to be killed. You know, look at Wilfred Owen. Uh, you know, if you, if, if you die, you become this martyr. If you live on in the succeeding decades, as Siegfried Sassoon did, uh, your reputation tends to dwindle. It's, ter it's a terrible thing uh, to be known for the work you did in your youth, which was inspired by a war yes. which you utterly hated and despised. I mean, no wonder Sassoon got a bit grumpy. 
There's also a hierarchy here, isn't there? Because in the Regeneration Trilogy, the hierarchy within the military, you know, who's an officer, who's a temporary gentleman, what class one belongs to, is something that you explore. Here, there's a, an, a hierarchy in the commissioning of art, isn't there? I'm yes. thinking of the character Nigel Featherstone, who... Yes, who is commissioned and... Uh, who uh, embodies who, that. Whom Eleanor and Paul and uh, probably Kit Neville too utterly despise because his work is so popular and so bland. And uh, uh, they get, there he is, and you know, where, where Kit Neville thinks he should be. I mean, one of the things, I don't know what you think about this, but I've noticed with some of the early reviewers that there's a real tendency to too easily equate the three male characters, the three main characters, with their supposed historical counterparts. Yes. So, you know, Eleanor Brooke is Dora Carrington, Paul Tarrant equates to Paul Nash. Yeah. And it seems to me that that risks thinking that we can understand your characters or even police them according to the historical biographies. I find that quite difficult. How do you feel as a Oh, yes, creator? I think it's one of the reasons why there isn't an author's note in Noonday. I, I just think it... I, I've come to the conclusion that it just sets people off on a wild goose chase. Mm. You know, if Eleanor Brooke is Dora Carrington, then, then when this book opens, she's been dead five years. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, that rather spoils the plot, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And she isn't Dora Carrington anyway. No. If, if there are any resemblances at all, it's with Virginia Woolf, mm. I would have thought. That's interesting because, of course, one of the things that Eleanor tries to do is to expunge the war from her life. You know, she wants to mm. live without it. It's not her responsibility. And that was part of Woolf's thinking too, wasn't it? I mean, how oh, yes, I mean, uh, Virginia, Woolf Virginia Woolf in the First World War just absolutely refused to have anything to do with it. Because, uh, you know, she was, as a woman, she didn't have the vote. Not only had she take, not taken any of the decisions that led to this disastrous war, she hadn't even voted for any of the people who took the decisions. So she regarded it in, in actually quite a stubborn and radical way as a male exercise, you know, something men felt they had to go off and do. Absolutely nothing to do with her. Mm. And Eleanor, in a less articulate way, puts forward the same point of view, but she can't sustain it. By the end of Toby's room, she has drawn these winter landscapes, which are about the, the death of her brother in the war, and are every bit as much war art as anything Paul or Kit are doing. And, um, you know, also by the end of Toby's room, she is working in a hospital as a medical artist. Yes. And so she is, in fact, making a contribution uh, to the war without uh, being any more enthusiastic about mm. it than she was before. But in the end, talk to, uh, Professor Tonks gets to her and says, look, here are these men, you know. It's not, not, no, it's not their fault. Uh, let's do everything we can to help them. And in this book, she is uh, already trained as an ambulance driver uh, when the book opens. Uh, but, the, the, but then, of course, she would have quite different take on the war against fascism from what she would have on the, you know, the sort of blundering around that led to the First World War. I mean, in this novel, you bring the, will, the war home. You know, we are in the Blitz, we're at the height of the Blitz in, in London, and the war cleaves open people's homes. Mm. Um, it's hard for people in London to, to escape or to ignore. 
Can you say something about those wounds of war? Because in this novel, some of those wounds are material, aren't they? They're, they're on mm. the houses, they're, they're in the landscape, not the blasted trees or the um, scarred fields in the First yes, World yeah. War, but wounds in the architecture, in the city. Yes. Uh, well, I think what the Blitz did, which was very shocking to people in the early stages of the Blitz, is to take the side off a house. So it becomes like a doll's house, and you can see people's bedrooms and what, they, what kind of wallpaper they chose, and you know, the picture which is hanging lopsidedly, the toilets, the, the bathrooms, uh, the kitchen. And uh, it's a total invasion of, of privacy. And, and yet some people, Paul, for example, are quite ambivalent about it. Uh, what drives Paul and Eleanor apart uh, is not e even his sexual restlessness. It's the fact that when their home is destroyed, she sees an expression of relief on his face, mm -hmm. as if this carapace which has developed around him into middle age has just been cracked open. And he senses, what he senses is freedom. And he has all along been trying to get Eleanor to go to the safety of the country, um, part, you know, partly because of genuine concern for Eleanor, but partly it leaves uh, him quite free to do what he wants to do. And uh, he says to Eleanor at one point, people didn't take their wives into the trenches with them. And she says, yes, but the trenches didn't run through the family living room in the last war, and now they do. And that, that is the difference. The war has come home. I mean, generations are important to you, and, and the war has come home. You, you keep two wars in mind throughout, don't you, and two, two temporal planes, if you like. And this generation, they've grown up. Your characters are, what, 25 years older in this novel? Um, they may have been the inheritors betrayed by their fathers into the First World War, mm. but now who are they for the generation I, I think who follows? I, I think what they, they, what they suspect of themselves is that they're the generation that dropped the catch, that in the last, at least the last two years of the First World War, they were fighting in their own minds a war to end war. Nothing less than that could justify the extent of the slaughter that was going on. And yet they're there... You know, their nephews and their sons and their nieces uh, later, uh, 25 years later, are doing ex having to do the same thing again or a variant of the same thing. And I think they felt they were failures. Uh, you know, that we dropped the catch. Here we are again. And I think it, uh, it, I think it unraveled the meaning they'd attached to their lives. Because if you have actually lost your face or lost an arm in the war to end war, uh, that is a deeply meaningful sacrifice. Mm. Uh, if you find exactly the same thing starting up again, it unravels the meaning, a sense of meaning, which was a consolation in your suffering. And would also be a consolation for the wives and the, uh, the mothers who had lost sons. And uh, it was a, a very difficult time. But I mean, I think the, the memory of the First World War changed with every decade. But in the late 30s and early 40s, I think the mood was very much among the veterans of that war, was very much one of failure. And oh my God, off we go again. That was interesting because as, as you were saying that, I had in my mind, I think it's, it's Eric Hobsbawm 
who uh, conflates the two wars and says that actually um, this is an, a, a curve, an age of ascending barbarism, mm. and that the interwar years, so the 30s that you're talking about, is an age of catastrophe. Is that how you see those interwar years? I think if we survive for 500 years, <laughs> which you know, we, 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 we may or may not, uh, I, I think it will appear to be different phases of one war. Mm. I don't think they will see it in 500 years' time. It'll be like you know, the 30 years' war, which was not 30 years' continuous war. It was stopping and starting and people changing sides and all that kind of thing. But no, I do, I do think they will see it as the, essentially the war which was fought around the emergence of this very late emergence onto the stage of this very powerful state. But I mean, I'm not a historian, you know. I, I mean, I, did, I read history at university, but yes. I was never very good. Uh, it's, historical fiction is, is really quite different from history, I think. And it's, it's a matter of understanding it from the perspective of a particular character in a particular place, which may actually be quite a false take on the historical period. But nevertheless, if it fits with the character, then it's the right take for the novel. Um, one of the things that you have done, I think, in, in writing about war and in making us think, particularly at the point that um, when you wrote Another World um, about a, an octogenarian veteran. It was mm. at the point at which the First World veterans were, were dying. We were losing their first-hand stories. You've made us think about war a lot. And um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about adaptations, if that's mm. okay. And the fact that I think maybe some of the audience may have been to um, Christopher Hampton's adaptation of the, the play of you know, Regeneration. And, you know... Unlike a lot of contemporary novelists, a lot of your work has been adapted into plays, into films. Mm. How do you feel about that? Absolutely overjoyed. You know, I'm, uh, oh, I don't know that I was overjoyed by Stanley and Iris exactly, but I, I, I was amused by it. I mean, I, I, I don't go off into a huff and say, well, they changed that, they changed that, and then Stanley and Iris changed everything. No, I mean, I, I, I love it all, I think, because I think there are, there are people out there who are primarily visual in the way they approach the world, and they're, they're probably always going to get more out of a, uh, a film or, or a play than they will get out of a novel, and that's fine by me. Well, I went to see the play of Regeneration twice, and, and it was packed. I actually had a lovely experience on the opening night. I was there at the opening night. And I went onto stage afterwards, and the, the cast applauded me. And, you know, I, I was so moved by that. Because I, mean, I thought I should be applauding them, actually, and in fact, I did. Uh, and then uh, they took photographs. And, I, and suddenly, uh, I know how Hillary, what Hillary Mantle feels about, you know, what's happening in her play, because I had a very small... Uh, echo of that, because I was sitting on a park bench, and Dr. Rivers was on side of was on one <laughs> side of me, and Billy Pryor was on the other, and I was thinking, oh my God, you know, th this is it was so strange that these people were actually there mm -hmm. as people, and they they were a very they were a very good cast. Yeah, this is a real it must be a surreal experience to see how these characters have taken on different lives and have been a spur to other creative artists. Yes, I'm, I'm not sure that I would want it to happen while I was still working 
uh, on, on those characters. Uh, I mean, if, you, if, you, if you're a fan of Morse, you'll realize that actually uh, uh, Morse, but in particular uh, his sidekick, are very different uh, in, the, in, the, in the books than they are on the screen. But as the books went on being written, uh, the, the, the fictional version got more and more like the screen version. Mm -hmm. And I think it's the, the screen is so powerful and so dominant that I think you would be influenced if you saw it on the screen before you wrote the next book mm -hmm. with those characters in it. Mm -hmm. But you're taking us somewhere completely different soon, aren't you? And somewhere I've never been with you, which is to Troy. Yes. Uh, I um, didn't know I was going to go there. Um, uh, well, I mean, I don't, you know, who knows whether I'll go there when it comes to the <laughs> point. Um, uh, the idea, anyway, is that the Iliad um, opens with a great quarrel between Agamemnon, the lord of men, and a, a brilliant, dazzling... Uh, godlike Achilles, uh, by his own estimation, and most other people's, the best fighter in the Greek armies. And they are quarreling because uh, Agamemnon has uh, uh, taken captive uh, the daughter of a priest of, of, of Apollo, and he's refusing to give her back to her father. And in the end, he accepts that he has to give her back to her father, uh, because Apollo is sending plague onto the, uh, into the Greek camp. But he then demands Achilles' girl uh, as a compensation for losing his girl, and he sends his heralds to come and take this girl away. So you have all these passionate, these two passionate, powerful men making all these eloquent speeches, quarreling over the body of two teenage bodies of two teenage girls mm. and the teenage girls don't say a single word from beginning to end so i thought right <laughs> <laughs> uh, let, let's let's have their side of the story let's hear what they've got to say so that is the genesis of the book anyway no, I think it's intriguing. I think it's it's and it's, it's not nice. historical. We'll follow you there. I'm this sure. is what I like about it. It's not historical. No. It's uh, it's a book. It's a book about a particular story that you know, either Homer told or more likely that Homer gathered these stories together and forged them into a whole. So it's it's a story that goes back thousands and thousands of years, and yet in. In ISIS-controlled territories in Syria at the moment, there are 15-year-old girls standing in a slave market, and men are bidding for them. And nobody is asking them what they think about it either. So the silence goes on. Mm -hmm. you know. Thank you. Well, I think um, these works are standing the test of time um, for readers who you entertain but make us think very deeply. I think we should all thank Pat Barker very much and there will be a book signing shortly so if you wouldn't mind letting us leave to get to the signing um, and then if you'd like to join and ask Pat Barker questions there that um, yeah, maybe... Yeah, do feel, come, on, let me know, come and talk to me individually because you know not everybody wants to hold forth in front yeah. of people. So thank you very much Pat. Thank you. Thank you.